0: The Hearing Twill over, Transforming Women's Leadership in the Law
1: If you make people feel included, they will work harder. And equally, if you don't present that you are welcoming to people of all backgrounds and all characteristics, they won't join you as an organisation. And you know what? You're then fishing in a talent puddle, not a talent pool.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the TWIL Takeover of the Hearing, where we are talking about women's leadership in the legal industry. This is in partnership with Transforming Women's Leadership in the Law, or TWIL for short. In today's episode, I spoke with Barry Matthews, who is the founder of the Social Mobility Business Partnership. This is a fantastic charity that is dedicated to supporting children who come from low-income backgrounds and helping them pursue careers in business or in law. Um, in addition to spending a lot of time on that charitable work, he is also a working lawyer and currently in a leadership position at Pennon Group. The reason we brought Barry onto the series is because he is someone who through his charitable work and through his just his leadership as a, as a lawyer, has worked very hard to support inclusivity in the legal profession. He is someone who really tries to make it easier for people to feel a sense of belonging as lawyers and and working in the legal industry, regardless of of whatever background you may come from. Just don't call him an ally though, because uh, as you'll hear him explain, he really dislikes that term. We had a great chat. Uh, He really doesn't shy away from offering some hot takes for, for you to think about. Um, as well as some really good tips on on how to manage teams in in an inclusive way and how to broaden the conversation about diversity and inclusion to to break down some of the silos that can spring up. So please sit back or or go for a walk, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. The Hearing will take over. Hello, Barry. Welcome back to The Hearing.
1: Really glad to be here.
0: Thanks for inviting me back. Yes, we're happy to have you. Um, I think you're a, you're a favorite guest here at Thomson Reuters.
1: That's right. I bet you say that's all the guest.
0: <laughs> well, we've spoken to you, not me personally, but various folks here in different formats um, over the years. And I think you were last on this podcast back in 2018. So I wanted to just see for, for our listeners who maybe haven't uh, heard from you before, just to ask what you've been up to since then.
1: Yeah, so 2018, I was at ITV uh, as a divisional general counsel there and um, the MD of a sales business. Um, since then, I have done a number of things actually. So I moved on, um, set up my own Nigel Ops consultancy. So working with um, international law firms, in house counsel around both sides of the buying coin. So that was um, Lex Jam Consulting, which now morphed into Isambard Legal which is still going strong in the background. Um, I then went and had a foray into the world of aerospace manufacturing, that natural segue from media to aerospace <laughs> manufacturing, and had a good two and a half years working with Megget, um, which is now known as Parker Meggett. And the last year it was spent um, getting the deal over the line for the takeover. So spent a lot of time on FDI antitrust clearances around the globe,
0: I am an antitrust lawyer by training myself. So I'm familiar with the fun that that can involve.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. You know, lots of um, dalliances, MOJ, lots of dalliances of the French government, which is very interesting, and and our own government in the UK. So, yeah, that was a really, really interesting time. Um, Big transaction. It's in the solar region, about 8 billion US. Um, So, yeah, really enjoyed that. Um, Decided that my career wasn't necessarily going to be in Ohio. Going forward, so um, decided to go back to my ops company, and then within a couple of months, um, a job popped up which I was really interested in, and now I'm working in the water industry. Oh. Uh, so working for Pennon, um, we own Southwest Water, which covers um, Devon, Cornwall, um, and also incorporates Bournemouth and Bristol Water. Got a couple of business um, retailer orga- organisations under the umbrella as well. So I'm the Group de- Deputy GEC, I look after government relations, I also look after M&A and a whole host of other things, including legal ops, and building out some really interesting legal tech models for the team to work with and build out efficiencies. So,
0: busy. <laughs> yeah,
1: busy. And then on top of that, um, weekends and evenings running the charity I founded um, back in 2017, which in no doubt will come on to, Andrew the Nicole. Of this
0: podcast. Exactly. That's a very good segue into exactly what I was going to ask you about. Um, and just to you know to back up the this series, as you know, of of the hearing is is focusing on women's leadership um, in the legal profession. And so we wanted to have you on today because you've been such a champion of supporting women and supporting diversity um, in your you know throughout your career. So we'll turn to that. Kind of more specifically, talk about women's leadership in a minute. But as you mentioned, um, you founded the Social Mobility Business Partnership, which is focused on social mobility, or or what we might call, I think, economic mobility in in the U.S. And I think a lot of the work that you do uh, with that charity, you know, it's more broad, but is relevant to the conversation about women's leadership too. So, anyway, with all that said, um, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about that work.
1: Yeah, sure. So the SMBP, um, we incorporated the charity back in the 2017, and its first year was 2018. So I think we were probably just about to launch in to a new world um, when we did the last one of these. So essentially what it it is, is getting organisations to collaborate in the provision of work experience and career coaching rather than competing. So what I found when I was at ITV was that whilst we were a FTSE 100 company, we didn't have the organisational bandwidth to provide work experience as a function legal at the time, because we just didn't have the operational resource within the HR team to support it. And so I decided to reach out to other GCs. So at the time, there was um, Roger James at Viacom, Manu Kamwar at Yahoo, Tish Christius at Microsoft, and said, look, we all believe in the same thing about fair representation within our profession. Why don't we collaborate on this rather than trying to reinvent the wheel by creating our own schemes? So what we did is we all agreed to come together and provide a day each, and we had business simulations. So when they came into our business, they walked in our shoes, because I always say it's impossible to aspire to something unless you know what it is. So consequently, talking at kids for an entire day about what you do, engagement, just drops off the edge of a cliff within 20 minutes because you're effectively creating school. Right. <laughs> and it's their summer holidays, and they're finding they're, they're feeling that they're somehow being duped into engaging for another week of school. So, what we did is said, look, to make this engaging and useful, let's create business simulations. So ITV is about the creation, the marketing, and the sale of a program. And Microsoft it's about the next generation Xbox, about the manufacturing journey, and actually putting them into mock negotiations. Between Microsoft and potential manufacturers around the globe. Yahoo was a new advertising product, and wrapped around that were all the issues around data privacy um, this side and your side of the pond as well. And then with the Viacom pieces around organizing the MTV Music Awards for Europe, and it was effectively um, show, uh, you know, reimagining how Viacom would negotiate with the host city and the artists and bring the students into those negotiation exercises. So, a really kind of rich array of different business simulations which enable students to showcase their skills in terms of um, teamwork, leadership, communication, both oral and written, all the things they get asked about when they go to interview, or all the things they get asked about in application form questions and the like. So, they had a bank of ammunition that they could refer to when they were put into those situations.
0: And the, just to stop, this is for kids who I assume are not normally exposed to this world, and you know, absolutely, aren't...
1: yeah. So it's um, kids from low income backgrounds, and so it's kids who are eligible for free school meals in the UK. Um, it's kids whose um, family income is equal to or less than the average household expenditure in the part of the country where they live. Because actually, in the UK, you know, it's not a universal experience. There's pockets of deprivation. And there's also differing um, costs of living based on the local economy. And so and I'm sure that's that's amplified in the US. And actually, interestingly, Hustle for the Press, and it's an exclusive for you now, we're launching in the US um, at the end of this month. So SMBP Chicago and SMBP Washington, D.C. Fabulous. Yeah, I'm really, really excited. It's been about three, four years in the making. And we're going to be working with the NHP. Um, it's a not-for-profit out there um, who provides affordable housing, the key workers and major corporations around the US. And what we're doing is working with the kids of the residents. So you've got people who may be working around and around the, the buildings, the law firms we're working with, and all the clients, and getting their kids to come in and see and touch and feel and understand what those businesses do and give them a real credible indication of how they can become the next generation of lawyers at those two organisations and or, people within the businesses which they serve
0: that's fantastic
1: yeah it's gonna be great i'm so excited i love chicago and i love washington so it's gonna be a, a person on it and we're gonna be doing our first resilience day in a baseball stadium at the nationals so
0: lovely <laughs> very nice you have to get to wrigley since i'm janelle wrigley you have to get to wrigley field in chicago too yeah well, <laughs> no relation
1: cubs, but... yeah the cubs unfortunately decided to come on this side of the pond so oh, right. you know, they're playing their kind of london series whilst we're in chicago <laughs> Who knew? But yeah, I mean, the Cubs are definitely on my list, especially because my favorite film in the whole world is The Blues Brothers.
0: Nice. So yeah,
1: absolutely. So yeah, very, very excited about that. So look, I mean, the whole conceit of the SMBP was to provide kids from their income backgrounds a window into our world, give them relevant experiences which they could refer to when they wanted to progress their careers, and then give them coaching. So we've got an app, and that app connects them with over 500 professionals. From all the 170 odd businesses that we've recruited um, to be part of this partnership and they at any point during their career on entry or progression can tap into the app ask for a particular type of coach submit their inquiry and whomever comes in first takes that inquiry and answers it so you're effectively in my mind providing those students with somebody to give them a guide on what good looks like. And we support the individuals who sign up, and it's you know people like you and me, Janelle, who will sign up as volunteers. We've got a, a manual, which has been put together by top-level group HR directors on what good looks like in the context of prep for interview, application form, model answers, and what a great CV and resume looks like. And then we provide them with safeguarding training. We provide them with training on the manual, and there's also support as and when they need it. And all the students, get they get that advice, they can rate it, and so therefore we can actually assist people with sharpening their tools to kind of give better advice in the future. Yeah. And the great thing about that model is is that people can sign up and there's no expectation on a minimum requirement, so they can actually input when they can. Yeah. So people do sign up, which is great. And so the students get holistically this week of experience and coaching for life. And the model is all about facilitating, not delivery. We don't have offices. And we don't actually pay people to deliver content. We provide the tools to businesses. So if you can provide lunch for 30 students and develop content which is engaging based around those competencies, for one day, you can join. And that effectively unlocks for a student a week's worth of experience, four different businesses, professional sports club, resilience training, and career coaching for life. We're taking it to the US.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) well, we're glad to have you. I mean that's, you know, it's so important. It's something that maybe doesn't get enough attention here always is is those issues of, of you know, helping lower income students modeling, you know, creating those opportunities. And it it sounds so incredible, because it's what you just described is something that can be replicated and sort of expanded. Um, I'm sure it's an enormous amount of work on your part, but it's something that can probably have a huge impact in a very practical way. So
1: yeah, I mean, the great thing is we've had the alumni come through now they're getting jobs. And so we've we actually we've got a number of and alumni now, qualified lawyers.
0: Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Who
1: started out the scheme back in 2014, 2015, have come through, got their training contracts in the UK and qualified, and now are actually coming back and helping us deliver it to the, to the students. Because my story's way too old.
0: Yeah. It's not going to
1: be engaging. But if you've got somebody who's four years ahead of you or five years ahead of you, you can see them, you can understand them, you can actually see that's that's doable. Yeah. And are from your part of the UK, we're your part of the US, that makes it all the more powerful.
0: Yeah, that must be so gratifying. You're very good at helping with these segues into the questions that I wanted to ask. Because <laughs> my next question for you was um, to ask about your story and, and how, you know, how you got involved in this in this type of work.
1: So I mean I mean, you in terms of interest in law, it's twofold, I guess. So I, I sat at the age of 17 with a careers advisor, and he asked me um, what I wanted to do. And I said, well, look, I think I want to go to university, and I think I want to be a lawyer. And um, the reason why I f- it was just think was because I didn't really know what those two things meant, because no one in my family had ever been to university, let alone study law. And the response I got was quite undefining in terms of why I've done what I've done, in the sense that he said to me, well... People from your social housing project, council estate, that's how we call it in the UK, don't go to university. And um, law, you'll see the inside of a prison cell. Um, but that's the closest you'll get to law. So that was really inspiring. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that was it. You know, we were, we were cannon fodder for the retail industry. And if we were really lucky, we'd get a trade and we'll have our name on the side of a van. None of which is a bad thing, but there was no kind of aspiration beyond that and yeah, higher education really wasn't even on the cards unless you were going to go and play sports. You know, it's less sophisticated in the UK around the sports scholarships piece, but it's still a route. So, I mean, that, that was me. Fast forward now you know, to 2014 when we devised this. Um, I wanted to do something for kids like me, because I was very lucky. I was, de- I was good at sports. I played rugby to a high level, and that opened a lot of doors for me, and also gave me huge amounts of confidence and social capital. And also, I was, I've was i been very lucky throughout my life to also have mentors. So my first mentor was my primary school headmistress. who um, he was also a magistrate. And um, you'll probably find this on the net. It's still there. She sadly passed away when I recorded an um, interview with her, for the First 100 Years Project. I watched um, it, yes. It's very sweet. Yeah, she's amazing. She, I mean... Even in her eighties, and even being you know five foot two, you know I'm six foot two. Yeah, I
0: shouldn't say sweet because I think you mentioned that she was, you know, she ran Spurt, a tight I, ship.
1: <laughs> I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to call her June. There's no one, and even now that feels like that she's God rest her soul. It was always Mrs. Foot, but she was amazing, and she really looked out for me. Saw, I mean, saw potential, and you know, shepherded me and made it sure I didn't go down the pathway that a lot of my friends did. So you know, I've had the benefit of that, and equally, you know, latterly in my career, um, once I kind of got into a you know, senior leadership role at ITV, I had the fortune to meet Helen May, who's a former GC at National Grid, and sat next to her at dinner in an event, I think it's actually one of your events, actually, and asked her to be my mentor, and she has been ever since, and she's, I mean, she's incredible, and also utterly frustrating, in that when you think <laughs> you've done something really, really good, you then have this conversation. Oh, what are you up to, Helen? Oh, well, I've decided to learn Norwegian so I can take a position on the board of a Norwegian Renaissance
0: edit- Company.
1: <laughs> of course, you have. Why would you, why you, do what that? Have you?
0: And so, what have you been up to? And you have to try what? to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, and, you know, and she's been amazing, giving me really, really wise counsel over the last 15 years of my career. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's really interesting the topic of this around you know, women in leadership. Because I've actually really benefited from women in leadership because they've been the people who have guided me on my career journey in this profession.
0: Yeah. Again, a beautiful segue, turning to women's leadership (laughs) in in the legal industry. You know, we were chatting, I think, last week in, you know, just preparation for recording today. And, you know, I mentioned that one of the reasons we were looking forward to talking to you is is this idea of being an ally to women. Stop there. Exactly. (laughs) Stop there. Please. I, I
1: hate the term ally. I'm a human being, you're a human being. We should be striving to have a common set of values around tolerance and understanding and actually ensuring that our actions aren't putting up unintended barriers to people fulfilling their potential. End of. I I always find it bizarre that we start conversations about diversity and inclusion by segregating society to remote inclusion. It seems absolutely madness. Now, it's not to say... There are not things which are absolutely pertinent to individuals with a particular characteristic. I can't ever say that I've experienced racism to the degree that my best friend has, because I saw my best friend is of Pakistani origin, you know, racially abused pretty much on a daily basis during the 80s when we were kids. And it's horrific. And I can't ever lay claim to have it, to endure that on top of the barbs, such as my career's advisor. Um, equally, you know, having seen my daughters go through puberty, my my wife go through early onset menopause after a hysterectomy because endometriosis, and seeing the impact of hormones, I can't ever lay claim to being. But I mean, it's horrific. I mean, I I really think that menopause and HRT as a kind of you know an, an overarching assistance to individuals would have been sorted by now if
0: it if, if men. Had to endure it. It's amazing, isn't it? I know it's just yeah. unbelievable,
1: utterly unbelievable. Uh-huh. And then what I really fell out with, a, I won't say the person's name, but a, an HRD I used to work with, when they were extolling the virtues of a menopause session that they'd run with a women's network, I said, "That's brilliant." I said, "Absolutely, with shared stories." But the people who need to hear about this most are male leaders who are who have women in their team going through this because they've got no idea. So you need to be educated mm. because you could be doing things, with unwittingly. Not because you're you know you're not sympathetic to what someone's going through, you're just completely wholly unaware. And it, you know, and equally on this move from gender to ethnicity. The blood sugar levels in, you know, the Muslim members of my team during Ramadan, bless them. I just you know, if you're not cognizant of these things, mm. you start you're not you you're not gonna get the best out of your people. So it all comes down to my view is that, you know, allies know human beings who have a a mindset of wanting to understand, and therefore they can out of that understanding build empathy. And actually, out of that empathy, they can build a working environment which can, is conducive to getting the best out of people. Because ultimately, what's best for people is best for a business. Because I know that people talk about the business case for diversity. I said it's simple, really, really simple. If you make someone feel included and you do you do everything you can to ensure that you're reducing stress outside of their job. They're going to be happier. If they're happier, they're more productive and more and more loyal. And if they're more loyal, more loyal and more productive, you get more done. If you get more done. You're more profitable as an organization. It's straight to the bottom line. If you look after people, they look after you. But unless you understand your people, you can't look after them.
0: You know, you talk about building empathy, and I think you're clearly, I think, an exceptionally empathetic leader I, in the things that you've done in the things that you're talking about now. And some of that maybe comes from your experience, you know, that feeling of not fitting in yourself from your background of coming from council estate and ending up in, in law. You know, for people out there who maybe have had less of that feeling and maybe don't have as much of that, you know, natural empathy, have you seen anything that works in terms of broadening the conversation, bringing people in, you know, so we're not all, not all just talking to ourselves about this, but actually getting you know people who might be less naturally sympathetic to de you know diversity, equity, inclusion causes. You know, how do we bring them in? I guess is what I'm asking.
1: I think I mean it's I think you bring them in by making a very cold, objective argument for why it's important, and it's a business case, and it's the same. I think you know, there's a there's a degree of um, similarity between. DNI and why it's important to me when I'm I don't possess any of the characteristics of the groups which are effectively saying I'm underrepresented that I need to be you know, I need to be helped to be made for to be included and all that sort of good stuff. When you look at pro bono, so back in the day when pro bono, US has had a long, long history. In the UK, it's relatively recently. You know, in terms of my lifetime, it, when I joined the profession just over twenty years ago, it was very much in its birth pangs in the UK. And it was because actually a lot of the US firms had come to London and actually brought that concept over. And I remember speaking to a partner in the firm I was in and said, I'm I'm, I'm volunteering for some small claims court work, um, helping people who couldn't afford legal representation. And he said, well, why are you doing that? This is ridiculous. You know, know, we're paying you this amount of money. And, you know, well, that means you're not billing clients. And we go, well, this is madness. I said, well, okay, we'll look at it another way. The way in which you've set up this firm is that I will not be allowed to have any kind of client contact until at least I'm five years qualified, because we're all kept in a back room doing ancillary tasks or MA and deals. And at the point at which you want me to have all of these skills that I can run a client relationship, where are these suddenly going to appear from? Because that doesn't just happen. You've got to learn that stuff. Wouldn't it be great if, in parallel with me doing all that backroom stuff you want me to do before you're allowing me to go anywhere near a client, I develop those skills in parallel, but at the same time provide a community benefit? How about that? Does that work? Then actually, you're building a better lawyer in the background. So, at the point at which you need them to be front of house, I can be front of house. And I think it's the same, you know, so and suddenly the penny drop goes, I can understand that. Yes, no, no, that's a good return on investment. Fine. No, personally, I'm doing it because I think it's important that we support the communities in which we work. You don't think that fine. No, the world's made up of different viewpoints. know I'm not going to be arrogant to say mine's right, and yours is wrong, but mine is right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so but it's a, it's coming arriving at you know, and actually the, well, one, one of the output is it doesn't really matter why people are doing it in my view, and it's the same with d and I. say well, look, if you make people feel included, they will work harder. Mm-hmm. And equally, if you don't present that you are welcoming to people of all backgrounds and all characteristics, they won't join you as an organisation. And you know what? You're then fishing in the talent puddle, not a talent pool. So you're going to miss out on some great talent, and also you're going to overpay. Because supply and demand, you're now limiting the number of people that you're, you're procuring as your next gen of talent. So you're naturally going to overpay. Just the simple law of economics. So you start breaking it down in that way. So look, you may not care about whether or not this is good for society. You may not care about if you think emotionally it's the right thing to do. But you do care about your bottom line. And you do care about not overpaying the talent. Right. Yeah. Go figure. I think that's (laughs) the the way in which you sell it. It's got to be cold-hearted, objective, business truth. Yeah.
0: Which happens to be true as well. So it helps. (laughs)
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah look into the eyes now you're back in the (laughs) room brilliant we've got a diversity and inclusion policy and we're actually going to live it yeah
0: exactly (laughs) you've held a lot of senior positions and you've led legal organizations throughout your careers and you know you've hired women leaders you've worked you've had women leaders as mentors so i'm just curious some of your experience you know what you've seen kind of what do you see that's holding women back what do you think the challenges are that are that are out there
1: So, I mean, I guess I know there's a couple of things that kind of spring to mind. One is, you know, invariably still the case if you are in a relationship and you have children, caring responsibilities more often than not will fall, fall to in a heterosexual relationship, the female in that relationship. And so consequently, there's always going to be a juggling act to be had, because unless you've got a partner who's attuned to the fact that actually Looking after kids and having a career is—it's a—it's it, hard. It's really hard, and yeah, uh, you know, and equally as well, you know, I've seen it with um, fellow um, GCs when parents are getting old, but naturally for some reason those sorts of responsibilities mm-hmm. fall for the female in a relationship, and actually looking after two sets of parents. Mm-hmm. So it's just the way that kind of falls. Unfortunately, it's not always the case, but you know, more often than not, that's what I've seen, and. It then comes down to whether or not your organization is structured in such a way to, take, to accommodate that and recognize the fact that having a strict notion of presenteeism is the demarcator of whether or not you're productive or useful or putting your, putting your effort in. I always said you know I got criticized again by the same HRD for having twenty seven different flexible working arrangements in place, none of which lined up to the flexible working policy and which i pointed out is quite bizarre that we've got an inflexible policy to govern flexibility <laughs> so <laughs> so surely it's two things do you have the technology to enable remote working and do you have trust in your staff because if you've got those two things why does it matter where they actually deliver their work from and at what time of day because actually, one of the things I railed against is that we suddenly brought in this policy that you couldn't email anyone past six o'clock. I said, that's really great. What if I need to go and do the school run at three, break off, and then it's six, six o'clock, and i have now, you know, I'm behind the curve. And actually, I usually get my three hours worth of tasks that I was going to do in the afternoon because I have to break away because so we live outside of London. I've got to jump on a train or, and I want to do it then. And I've now got to wait.
0: Yeah. That scenario exact scenario happened to me yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) uh, That's ridiculous.
1: I said, look, I don't when I fire out emails, because actually, you know what? I like to be involved in my kids' lives. And actually, I could be here until nine o'clock every night. And then I get home, my kids have gone to bed. I don't see them. I see them on the weekends and that's it. And that's rubbish. So I want to break away sometimes. And you know what? I'll get back online at nine o'clock and I'll use those three hours to kind of claw back the time that I'd lost during the day. But let me be, you know, the judge of where my time lies Because, you know, funnily enough, lawyers are quite conscientious people. You know, we are all got here because actually we passed a lot of exams, because we care, and we care what people think about the quality of our work and the like. So they are some bad apples, but the, the mainstay, we're quite a conscientious bunch. So And we're all adults, who knew? Yeah. So if you have technology and trust, I think you'll be fine. Yeah. But we always said there was one rule, it was the D-BAD principle. Don't be a dick. <laughs> because if you if you're a dick, you're gonna spoil it for everybody. So don't, you know, don't take advantage right. of that and actually, you know. And I said, and I also and when I've run teams said that flexible work is for everybody, not just women and not just parents, not just those caring for their kids. If you've got a hobby, if you want to go kite surfing, okay, fine. That's equally valid. Because what I saw, and it was a really quite quite an unfortunate dynamic, that those who didn't have care responsibilities actually other fellow women in the team were actively getting riled by somebody leaving at three. And I actually had to say to one head of legal, "I with, you need to start CCing in people. It's rubbish, I know, and I've got no issue Yeah, But there's a perception in their mind that you're not working right. as hard as they are. But I know you're probably working twice as hard because you're so efficient because you're juggling all this stuff. And so I actually had to, to basically flag the fact I'm online. Right. And that was really heartbreaking because you know it was women actively disparaging other women who are in different stages of their life or different situations, and I just thought this is madness. Again, this it comes back to this notion of values and, and concept of you know let's be appreciative that we all have different things that make us tick. We're all got we know what our tasks are. We're, you know, whilst the legal profession has always been valued by the hour, which is nonsense. So I've not bought legal services by reference to the hour for twenty years now. It just basically it doesn't breed any kind of efficiency. Just throw everybody's at it and go, oh, right. Let's go and then have a massive argument about the bill afterwards. So don't value your input. It's about the output, it's not the input measured in terms of hours or where you are for the day. Create an environment where actually you support people to fit things in in the way in which they can, make good on the deadlines that they've got. And then, funnily enough, if you do that, they're loyal, they work hard, right. they want to stay. You know, and actually, you and the only can unlock those those 27 different working arrangements by actually knowing your people right. and understanding the stresses and strains.
0: And maybe that's the, there's still so much resistance, I think, to adopting flexibility, even, you know, with the experience of the pandemic, when, you know, many of us were for, yeah. forced into, the, you know, these more flexible arrangements. And I wonder if it is because, I mean, several of the things that you mentioned, it, it just takes more work right as a manager you have to be dedicated to it you have to be you know like you're saying keeping an eye and making sure that people aren't resenting each other and so I, do you think that's why there's there's not more widespread adoption of, of flexible arrangements I think
1: you know it's it's about ensuring it's communication isn't it with everything I mean everything does boil down to communication in a way, but you need to have the systems which enable that that people can actually If they're not in the same place, they can communicate. They can also be kept abreast of what's going on in the same way you could if you're all in the same room. So one of the things that I've done immediately when I arrived at Pennon was to build out a new legal ops platform um, in M365, which is a matter management system, a document management system, a real-time messaging platform, and an automated workflow. With real-time reporting with Power BI, which enables people to feel comfortable and confident. We don't track people's time, but what we do is say, like you know, every time you move something on, you update that well, that matter management system. So actually, your boss, your peers have all got a window into what's happening. And actually, it's one of those curious things that enables everyone to be abreast of what people people are doing, mm. and actually gets rid of a lot of this kind of suspicion that someone's getting an easier ride than they are. Right. And the workflow, you know, you know, I I put it together to enable everyone to work collaboratively, but equally, people can then see that there's a fair apportionment of work, and a fair a fair um, rhythm of task delivery, and so that kind of quells that kind of suspicion that somehow someone's getting that easier ride, and I'm you know somehow you know I'm pulling more weight, and therefore I should be promoted, I should have this more, you know, and this person may i more money because they've been here longer than inflation. Right, you stop all that crap. And get people to start gelling as a team. Um, look, I mean, I would say this, but you know what? It's worth the upfront effort of getting to know your team and building out those things because you build that collegiality. You have fun at work, people are and then again, people who are happier, less stressed, and more productive. Um, you've got to get the right people um, at the start, but once they're in, you know, it's like you know, any team I've ever played in we all have different strengths is about creating the environment for that person to be the best version of themselves and being attuned. It's like, again, kind of another sport. And I Dave Braille said it's about marginal gains is about taking their beds from home and taking them on tour with them. So they slept in their own beds every night, no matter which city they were in, they were in a
0: the race.
1: They had the same pillow, they had the same mattress. Amazing. And so all of those sorts of things and that attention to detail and actually bespoking how you, you manage people gets the best out of them. Bringing it back to the original question, you know, it's the caring responsibilities piece and find their way through that. And the second piece is, again, I've got no scientific um, evidence. I'm sure there might be some scientific evidence out here, but my experience has been that if I'm sitting there with two heads of legal, one male, one female, and the next step um, to be a director, say, in that organisation comes up, and those two individuals, equally competent, look at their job description, and that job description maps to 25% of their current... Well, actually, you know what? I'll be more generous. 50% of their current competencies and experience. 99 times out of 100, the guy will say, yeah, I, 50%, I, yeah, I'll learn. The woman, won't. the woman will just say, no, I can't do 50%, so I'm not really going to put myself forward. And I've just seen it time and time again. This lack of confidence in one's abilities and filling that gap, and it just it absolutely it crucified me to the extent where I've seen situations where the guy's got twenty five percent of the there and then he's got seventy five percent, but that twenty five percent will be the thing that stops. And it, actually, I spent a lot of my career getting my heads of legal or, or people around to, to basically have confidence in their abilities to take those opportunities. You know, I don't know why. And it's not every woman I've ever worked with, but it's more often than not. And it's something I've observed.
0: It comes back to that mentorship piece. and But also there's two pieces to it, right? You also want to make sure the organization is hiring women if they only have 50% of the qualifications.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I mean, you know, I think confidence comes from seeing someone who's there already. And You look at the stats, and I was on the board of the SRA, our regulatory body, for six years, and the stats, the fall-off, the the profession in the UK starts off 50-50, and actually, if anything, it's slightly nudged towards female-male in terms of ratio on entry. But when you get to partnership, you're down at 30%, like a 20% drop-off where you were. And that, I think, has an impact. If you can't see somebody in that position... Arguably, where do you draw your confidence from that that's attainable? And so I think there's a lot, there's probably maybe that's, you know, the causal link in some respects. I also think women are much more intelligent than blokes, generally, because I think women can see more eventualities. I mean, I, I, I've seen you know, the ability to, to see different eventualities. The blokes can be very simple in terms of A, B, and if I don't get to B, I'll have to recalibrate and go to C. I just don't think our brains are that wide <laughs> laterally in, in lots of instances. So maybe that there's something there, but, you know, it's utterly frustrating because like I said, you know, I come back to this point, I'm a human being and I'll get, I'll get absolutely castigated for saying this, but I don't see colour, I don't see gender, I don't see sexual, I don't see disability or ability, I just see people. Um, I'm respectful of cultural identity and I love the fact that we live in a, in a you know society where we, we've got different influences and... Whether that's cult music, whether it's food, whether it's history, you know, let's embrace all of that. But you know what? Let's just see each other as human beings and actually see the people with skills and how we elicit the best from them, and stop getting hung up on ticking boxes. Because you know you cannot do diversity where one year we're going to focus on ethnicity. This year we're going to really crack that one. Then next year let's do gender. Mm. No, let's do... and it's like I mean, no people are necess- necessarily complex. And it says they possess multiple identities, multiple backgrounds, characteristics, and all of those fused together to make them as a, an individual. Recognising there are, you know, there's racism, there's misogyny, all those horrible um, traits in people which exist, which aren't going away. Um, if anything, I think they're probably as strong as they ever were. They're just more subtly hidden. Whereas, you know, growing up, it was okay to be racist. So people were openly racist. It ain't okay to be racist. Now, so people are still racist, but tone it down. And it's far more subtle and harder to call out. I think it's the same sexism as well. So the way in which you kind of go over that is you suddenly bring it up a level and say, okay, what are the values that we all celebrate? And how do we live those values? And recognising that on the quantitative side of things, that it's not working in terms of quality and fair spread of opportunity. Because if it did, would be more representative as an organisation. So why is that? What's stopping that? So let's try and address that. Let's share those stories across multiple characteristics to I crack it. And actually what you get down to in my books is you don't go for quotas, but you go for long lists of jobs and you actually provide people going for those jobs who are in underrepresented groups coaching. You give them the advantage of getting a bit of extra insight into what's required and what, what you expect and also building confidence that the bit they don't have, actually we don't expect you to have everything. So don't worry about that. That's, you know, we don't expect anyone to be 100% you know, capable of all the aspects of the job because if they were, actually, they'd be bored within five minutes and then we've I've got a very demotivated person or somebody who hasn't got anything to kind of you know, regress and grow into. So it's just applying a bit more intelligence to all of this and embracing the complexity.
0: That leads me to, so we have these two questions that we're asking all of our guests as as part of this particular series, and it might be challenging for you because you've offered a lot of, I think, practical advice in our discussion today about things that people can do in their working lives or their personal lives, you know, to be more empathetic, to be more inclusive, to help, you know, make the legal profession better. But if you could pick one thing for our listeners to tell them, you know, to go out and, and do to address some of these challenges that we've been talking about today, is there one that you could, that you would say?
1: Yes, I think I would. I mean, I think it's data, data, data. Understand your people, understand who they are, what they're made up, you know, and then you can reflect on whether that data is a starting point for a conversation that potentially might be an issue in terms of intended or unintended barriers to people realising their potential. but Unless you've got the stats, unless you can see it. And it's not that, you know, the stats themselves aren't the answer that there's a problem. But it's it actually identifies where you've got to start first. Actually identifying and actually going out and doing your, you know, trawl over exit interviews, find out why people are leaving. Why aren't people um, pushing themselves forward for a partnership or a women? One of the things I said with the SRA is that we can do these diversity data trolls, which are part of the regulatory framework, but we need to get behind those stats and understand the stories and understand why that women aren't going from senior associates into partnership. And actually, are they making a positive choice to leave the profession or are there barriers? Um, equally, what's happening in terms of, you know, the ethnicity? Because actually, by looking if you group your data in BAME, which is a ridiculous Grouping because you know, black and minority ethnic is not a homogeneous group. It's very different experience for somebody from a black African background in the UK to somebody from an Asian Chinese background. And actually, you know, looking maybe where we should start is looking at poverty, because poverty is you know it doesn't it doesn't discriminate. It will affect groups different groups more intensely, on those stats. But starting with poverty, everybody's in. Quality of opportunity, poverty takes away opportunity, let's buy into that. Okay, what happens when you add gender? Well, oh, it gets worse. Well, why is that? What happens when you add gender and race? It gets even worse still. Disability, okay, well, let's then draw back them because we all agree that quality of opportunity is the right thing. And now we can see indisputably that actually adding this filter, it's like a microscope, it gets worse. There's something in this, but we've all established the principle that actually... Quality of opportunity is something we need to find. So actually, let's start having that conversation. Whereas if you start from the other side and put the filter in front of the microscope, suddenly you will offside a number of people who think, well, actually, I'm really highly suspicious. I'm not a woman. And therefore, this must disadvantage me. And so therefore, I'm not going to engage in this. And I'm naturally going to be suspicious of you. And actually, anything that happens to you is only because you're a woman, which is crap. Because actually, we know there's barriers, whether it's caring, whether it's menopause, whether it's misogyny and basic sexism. Now, these things exist and they have an impact, but you never get to that conversation because there's a suspicion that somehow there's positive discrimination, which has affected me, which has taken away my life chances. But if you put it behind there, you say, well, actually, let's look at poverty. Okay, yeah, we all know that poverty is horrific and it has those impacts. Let's buy into it. And then when you get to that conversation, you say, well, the stats don't lie. Why is that? Let's have that conversation. But you're included already in that D&I conversation We started with poverty. And what you will then do, which I love doing, is outing the racists, the misogynists, the, the, you know, the, the homophobes for what they are.
0: And then the, the last question is to end on kind of an, an idealistic note. If you picture, you know, we, we've reached our goals, we've made the legal profession a, an inclusive, diverse and equitable place. What does that look like to you? What does success look like?
1: a shed load of money going into the economy because we're far more profitable, which then actually helps everybody.
0: I love it. There you go.
1: That's what it looks like.
0: Barry, thank you so much. This was such an interesting conversation. Um, Love the perspective that you bring and the amazing work that you're doing. I can see why you've been such a a favorite guest here at Thomson Reuters. So we appreciate that you've come back to spend a little bit more, more time with us.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me
0: back. The Hearing will take over. A legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com slash the hearing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.